Hi, my name is Cody, and I'm on a mission to break the silence of domestic violence and sexual assault. This production is brought to you by Bolton Refuge House, which is located in Wisconsin. At Bolton Refuge House, we create a safe space through programs and services for all persons impacted by domestic violence, intimate partner violence, and sexual assault, and advocate for social change. Hi everyone, Cody here. I know I usually start these things off with some sort of witty remark about my personal interests or choice in PJs, but today I bring you some somber news. And Domestic's 2022 homicide report just came out, and it reports that 96 people lost their lives due to domestic violence in Wisconsin in the year 2022. That's the highest it's ever been since End Domestic started keeping track of these statistics way back in 2000. Sometimes I forget how long ago the year 2000 was, so let me try to put it into perspective for those of you who are like me. Starting off, people were pretty stoked because the whole Y2K thing didn't destroy the world. Um, oh, the song Oops, I Did It Again by Britney Spears just came out. Oh, and the guy talking to you right now would have been about four. That's how long they've been collecting this data for Wisconsin. And again, we just hit the highest number of domestic homicides they've ever seen for our state. So that's why today, I think it's important to dive deeper into end domestics data. I want to talk to my personal friend and Bolton's legal advocate, Bronson, on why he thinks the numbers we're seeing are so high. And to end things off, I'd like to share ways you can help. One thing I'd like to highlight is that End Domestic Abuse Wisconsin gives us 2021's data along with 2022's data in the report making it easier to compare the two years. And you probably already guessed it, but 2022's numbers are higher than 2021's, except for one statistic. It went down from four incidents to one, that being attempted homicide incidents with perpetrator suicide, which is great, until you look at the other statistics and realize that all that means is either perpetrators have become more successful in killing their victims or less successful at taking their own lives. Another scary statistic, only 8 out of the 71 perpetrators in Wisconsin were female, which means a large majority of perpetrators of domestic violence homicides are males in Wisconsin. So with that said, I wouldn't blame you if you thought females were always largely the victims. Well, you'd be kind of right and kind of wrong. In end domestics data, they show there's kind of an even split between male and female victims of domestic violence homicides up until the age of about 29. Once the age range of victims get into that 30-plus range, that's when it starts to skew towards more females as victims. So yes, a majority of victims are female in Wisconsin, but not as large of a majority as you would think. Since we're discussing victims, and domestic data shows that a majority of them are white and black females, followed by black males. As for perpetrators, well, it's largely white or black males. Now, these statistics may be a surprise to you. You may even have little to no recollection of such homicides even happening in your area. Well, there's a reason for that as well. And domestics data shows that the average county only had one or two homicides due to domestic violence in 2022. Why are these numbers so high then, I hear you asking? Well, in comes Milwaukee with a staggering 32 reported cases. The really scary thing is, I went back to the 2018 report to see how much incidences occurred in Milwaukee then. It was 11. It more than doubled in, what, four years? Now, my first reaction when seeing this was, can't we just let Illinois have Milwaukee? And, as tempting as that may seem to some, 
it really doesn't fix our problem, does it? Let's face it, even if we excluded Milwaukee from the data, that still leaves us with a large number of domestic homicides. So what is going on? Luckily, I have Bolton's legal advocate Bronson here to fill us in on what his thoughts are. Speaking about the 2022 homicide report, I get that a lot of people are focused on the the big number, right? Um, which is important. 96 total deaths compared to 80 in the last year is significant without a doubt. Um, I really want to focus on some of the key takeaways specifically with the report is the number of deaths due to gun violence. So there was a push years ago to include in the legislature um, or have the legislature take up some kind of gun violence restraining order for family members, community members to be able to petition the courts for a restraining order to restrict firearm access. Again, you know, after a hearing, so, you know, there would have to be reasonable grounds, right, to prove that someone was a violator or a potential violator in order for that restraining order to be granted. But that never really took off. Um, to the best of my knowledge, it didn't survive the committees because Wisconsin is a pretty um, pro-gun rights state, right? Which we live in a rural community, completely accept that. But if you look at the evidence that we have uh, concerning the intersectionality between gun violence and domestic homicides, it's pretty black and white that if you, if we did something more to manageably affect um, access to firearms for people who are at high risk of committing domestic abuse, we would most likely see a change in these numbers. I'm going to quickly interrupt here. I just want to say Bronson's absolutely right. And domestics data separates the different methods of domestic violence homicides from 2022, and the highest number of incidents is at guns at 63, followed by stabbings with recorded six incidences. Now, Ian Bronson aren't saying that all the guns should be taken away, but that there needs to be a way to keeping guns out of the hands of abusers. Now, back to Bronson. A lot of people, I'm assuming, are going to be drawn to the fact that, you know, Milwaukee's an outlier. A significant amount of the numbers came from Milwaukee. But in looking at that, you can still see that even in the rural communities, very rural communities, domestic homicides are happening. Uh, and that's something that is critical to take into consideration when you're looking at, and I'm not a statistician, um, but when you're looking at these populations, thinking that rural communities aren't affected. I mean, for every one of those lives that were lost in those communities, you know, everyone tangentially affected in relation to that um, was also affected, right? Um, so it's not just one or two lives lost in those communities, it's hundreds of people, thousands of people um, being affected by that homicide. So we really need to kind of step back from that big number a little bit um, and dig a little bit deeper into what exactly is is causing that. One of the big factors that I really wanted to consider as well or take a look at was the location of the incidences. Um, I think that's another big factor that a lot of people need to be aware of is the fact that something like 85% of it took place either at the residence or in 
a public road, uh, alleyway, highway, street, or sidewalk. So, and these were the, again, these are homicides, right? So when we as advocates do safety planning, and we talk about specifically when we do safety planning, homicide reduction, lethality assessments and things like that, um, we're talking specifically about people reducing the potential for lethality in these places, right? So their homes, their apartments, um, other dwellings that they occupy, and then out on public with the offenders, you know, in the front of the homes or when they're driving with the offenders. We know that that's been a, a tactic of family annihilators for quite some time is to get everyone in a car and then drive it off of something, so. I'd like to point something out. Notice the location Bronson was discussing that had the higher numbers. Alleys, streets, sidewalks, and of course apartments. Yes, they're not secluded areas, but I wouldn't call them crowded either. The only reason I bring this up is because whenever I make a safety plan, I tell people if they have to meet with their abuser, meet at a restaurant or a library, because unlike the sidewalk or alley, there's bound to be people around you. And the locations are calm enough where if something were to happen, someone will notice. There is a previous episode on safety planning, so feel free to give that a listen if you're interested in learning more. Now, back to Bronson. Other key factors from the report that, you know, stuck out to me specifically is the the homicide incidents with perpetrator suicide, right, which was at 18 this year, and then the homicide-suicide incidents involving firearms, which is at 17. So when I'm speaking with victims, especially in my work with victims who are trying to re-enter a relationship where violence has been used um, against them, right? So, you know, victims of strangulation, um, victims of aggravated batteries, attempting to re-enter relationships with abusers, which in Eau Claire County, they have to go through a, or they're requested to go through a safety planning with an advocate if they want the no contacts modified so that they can have contact with that person again. A lot of them cite the mental health of the abuser as the reason for them wanting to re-enter the relationship. When I'm largely doing these, it's important to know that a lot of these mental health issues that these abusers are facing, victims typically feel responsible for caretaking, for helping the abuser. And their hope in sitting with that is that if they help the abuser, they'll stop being an abuser. Then they'll be able to live the life they wanted, right? We all know about the the honeymoon phase and the cycle of violence, the denial phase. This is smack dab in the middle of that. So that statistic specifically, to me, should be an indicator to victims that they really need to focus on their own physical security before martyring themselves to an abuser's mental health. If they're acknowledging that the abuser is suffering you know, with mental health issues, um, that has to be dealt with by the professionals, right? Hopefully, if the abuser is, you know, in the criminal justice system, um, they'll be getting evaluations, um, they'll be on conditions that might make a no-drink, they might be offered treatment courts and things like that to deal with their substance abuse, but the victim themselves shouldn't feel compelled to put themselves in harm's way because they want to make the abuser's life better, even though that's what they want to do because they still have love for the abuser. It's easier when I'm talking to victims who have children because victims who have children are typically more inclined to put their children's well-being in front of their own, so they're a little bit easier to 
talk to about securing the children and themselves away from violence, but a lot of um, older victims in later life, and then a lot of younger victims who maybe not don't have children or have young children, they think that there's enough time to try to sort out the abuser so that the abuser can be a productive father for their children or mother for their children or XYZ. That same number correlates with the when the perpetrator was the male, the victim was a girlfriend. Um, that's huge, that that number is even higher than the victim was a wife. So what we're seeing a lot in that goes back to that that aspect of people who maybe don't have as much stability as, you know, someone in a marital relationship or people who are intimate partners rather than husband and wife. So there's a lot to unpack when it comes to breaking down these numbers. And it may shock a lot of other people um, who aren't in this world. But I think for a lot of us in this world, what this just does is reaffirm what we already have been knowing is that these these populations of high-risk individuals exist. And our job, when it comes to the reduction of lethality, you know, or mitigating the factors of lethality, is education. Telling people when they're at high risk. We know that homicides are preventable when we can uh, detect them. So when we know what risk factors exist, um, based on communicating with victims, we can let them know exactly where they sit in that, kind of in the crosshairs of that, and whether or not um, we need to take steps right now. Victims are not naive. You know, they don't, um, they, they know that there's a risk. It's just that the reward of having the life that they want can outweigh the, the risk of that. And then on top of that, when you have victims who are actively trying to flee, actively getting away, what we know is that there's a lot of uh, systems layers that want to create contact um, between offenders and victims. Um, you know, child custody arrangements, child custody orders dictating that abusers and victims have contact, even directly through our family wizard, other apps, having contact directly through child exchanges at you know neutral sites these kinds of things. For a long time, I've been trying to get people to understand that any contact, direct contact from victim and abuser um, is ultimately detrimental to the victim. And because of that, it usually is detrimental to the children as well. So again, this report, all it does is really substantiate um, the trends we've been seeing. My fear is that, you know, the numbers increasing tell us that we have not created the, the systems that we need to have. Another thing, you know, for us who have been tracking this, um, you know, reading these reports for the duration of our careers, things like that, um, we know that these numbers are typically low-balled, right? Um, that, you know, for a long time, Wisconsin was pretty stagnant um, at around 50 to 70 um, domestic homicides a year. Um, we used to pop up and down, you know, around. This is the highest um, it's ever been. And that, you know, that might be because we're collecting data more effectively um, and, you know, um, coming to a place where we're understanding um, the relationships, domestic relationships a lot better. 
um, you know, early on in my career, only, you know, seven, eight years ago, um, we saw, you know, a lack of um, uh, domestic abuse modifiers being added to assaults that were taking place between LGBTQ um, couples, right? Because um, if in rural communities, if they didn't want to disclose that they were in a relationship, right, um, they weren't tagged as being in a domestic relationship or being victims of intimate partner violence. Um, even in communities like ours, you know, if 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 they were um, if they were living together, um, the first assumption, um, without any kind of direction, was that they were simply roommates, um, same-sex couples. Um, so you know, a battery or disorderly conduct didn't have that domestic modifier. Um, so if a, if a, a homicide happened <coughs> during those years. Um, that's exactly what it would have looked like is is not a domestic related homicide um but i think you know these numbers show us that we're getting better at um identifying domestic relationships um and then at the same time um you know again i don't think it's a i don't think it's a something that doesn't make sense that a lot of the really rural northern communities didn't have any um domestic homicides um, or even in Eau Claire, um, you know, some of the central parts of Wisconsin, we know that, that these numbers don't reflect the actual harm that's happening, right? So just because we see, you know, zero in the northern, you know, counties, you know, lesser numbers in the western side of the state doesn't mean that, you know, domestic homicides aren't happening, right? Or that domestic abuse doesn't happen um, in those locations. What we know is that those numbers being tracked are um, most likely a little a little less than what they should be, and that's just a limitation of the of the report. The report does a really good job of um, explaining that as well. Um, why exactly those numbers might be lower? You know what the what the the data they can access is. You know how they um, how they go about um, putting together the data. So. When it comes to when it comes to the actual report, I understand everyone wanting to focus on 96, right? Everyone, that's everyone's kind of that's the headline. But I really would encourage people to look through the stories of the victims, at least a few of them, and really come to understand the dynamics that were involved. You know, especially if you're someone who works with victims. The scary thing is that you know, working with hundreds, probably thousands of victims a year when it comes to the stories that we see, we can see the victims we serve in these stories. And again, it just creates a, a realness to the work that we do when essentially we're just grateful that it wasn't the victim that we served who ended up in this report. And we feel saddened for that victim and our heart goes out to the advocates um, who worked with them and did the best that they could to provide services if they were receiving services. So since the numbers are so high, places like Bolta must be swimming in the dough, right? Nope. In fact, VOCA, one of the bigger grants to keep places like us going, just took a huge slash in funding. And when I say a slash, I mean by roughly $10 million. Why is this important? Well, it takes several grants to allow Bolton to offer all the services that it does, and even the slightest cut to funding, we feel, 
So, if you want to help out, please reach out to any of your friends who happen to be multimillionaires. And if you don't have millionaires for friends, I guess you could also reach out to your local legislator and let them know why you think funding programs that assist victims is important. And that works too, I guess. Jokes aside, we do appreciate any help you can offer. With that said, I hope you have a good day, or night. I'd like to give a special thanks to Bronson for being on the podcast, and I'd like to thank you for listening. Until next time. If you or someone you know is affected by domestic violence or sexual assault, I encourage you to reach out to our 100% confidential 24-hour hotline. That number is 715-834-9578. We have trained advocates ready to help.